Welcome to The Lead, the Hartford's executive podcast series, where some of our company's most innovative and engaging leaders share their thoughts about leadership, career development, our company, and industry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Lead. I'm your host, Paula Angelo, and I head internal and CEO communications at The Hartford. Our guest today is Mo Tooker, head of commercial lines at The Hartford. His new role was announced in November 2023, and today he oversees the company's small commercial, middle and large commercial, and global specialty business lines, as well as enterprise sales and distribution. Mo, welcome to the lead. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks, Paul. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Well, we have a lot to discuss, so let's just get right to it. I want to start by learning a little bit more about how it all began for you professionally. Our listeners tell us that they love hearing about the Hartford's leaders' origin stories. So let's just go ahead and start at the beginning and talk about the first steps in your professional journey. You went to Middlebury College where you studied economics and environmental studies. And then shortly after graduation, you began a career in insurance as an underwriter with General Reinsurance Corporation. So what interested you in insurance so early on and what excites you about it now? Yeah, I think when I was looking for a job early on, what intrigued me was this underwriting role. And many of the underwriting roles are 50% sales and they're 50% underwriting. And I think that's really what intrigued me, this idea that I could have a job that was fairly analytical for most of the day, half the day. And then there was another half of the job, which was about going out and creating relationships and business development. And I thought the mix between the two was a pretty unique opportunity. And I still feel that today, Paul. And I think our underwriters are unique people. Like they were asking them to do some analysis as a part of their day job. And I feel like their night job is really making sure they keep the flow going. And it's a nice balance between the personal and the analytical. And I know that you had a series of roles that helped you ramp up in your career. Talk a little bit about those early days in the profession. What were some of the major lessons that you learned in some of your early career positions? Yeah, I think it's the same today for many underwriters across the industry. You come in at a relatively young age or you can start your career that way, yet you get put in front of individuals, brokers, other underwriters who are far more senior and have seen a lot more. So I think one of the first things you learn is you got to be pretty humble because you don't know as much as the person across the table from you pretty, pretty conceivably. And you also really just got to make sure you're listening. So it's a great opportunity to learn and, and to, to appreciate, you know, what other people bring to the conversation. And, and that came through very early, Paula. You mentioned that oftentimes in those early career roles, you're talking to people with much more experience. I'm just curious, how did you reconcile that knowledge and yet still feel confident enough to interact with people with that kind of experience? Because I would imagine that was something you had to learn. You will make mistakes. You will get knocked off your stride and somebody will say, boy, I can't believe you asked that question. <laughs> and when you're young or inexperienced, I, I think you just got to be willing to get back up and, and stand up again and, and go back at it. And I think that resiliency, if you like, is a really important skill that I learned early on. Are you able to spot that now in some of the underwriters on your team? You you see it very quickly in terms of people who lead with their chin and 
and they learn quickly and, and you can't really get too defensive about it. Even today in, in execs or other leaders I watch, this idea of people who can avoid getting defensive and just take it as a learning opportunity. I really look for that. I think it's a, it's a, a key leadership trait in general. Lifelong learning opportunities for, for those of us who have been in our careers for a while. I'm curious about the in, environmental studies focus during your time at Middlebury. Talk a little bit about how that factors into the way that you approach your role today. I've always been really passionate about environmental issues. And in fact, when I came out of Middlebury, I, I did look at a number of jobs in that field. It's still a part of, of who I am today, and, and especially some of the challenges we have as a nation, certainly as a company, certainly as a, as a world community. We just have so many opportunities and so many demands on us to make sure that we, for example, make this energy transition. And I think the fun thing, Paula, is as we're building out, for example, this energy transition and the products that we can provide as a company to help in that transition. And so it's it's still front and center for me. And it, 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 yes, it's not maybe my 24-hour-a-day job, but it is an important part about the way I approach the issues that we face today. And for those who are not familiar with the term, how would you explain what you mean by energy transition? Yeah, the vast majority of our societies around the world are powered by carbon-based fuels, and that could be coal, it could be natural gas, it could be oil. Think about your vehicle, all those types of things. And, and global warming um, is powered by all those things, and you know, use that same term. So how do we transition to more sustainable sources of energy over time? And we've been going through that for probably 30 years. We're going to be working on that for the next 50 years, I suspect. But I think it's an exciting time, especially as the pace of technology continues to pick up. Uh, the chances are to move away from some of those carbon-based. It has to happen over time. It's not going to be over overnight. And um, I think that's the transition that I'm talking about. So coming back to your career, so you were at Gen Re and you had the opportunity to take uh, an overseas assignment. So you spent more than a decade living and working in London. Tell us a little bit about what led to that move and how was the experience both personally and professionally? Yeah, for those that don't know, my wife and I started on the same day at Genry. So we both started as underwriters at Genry and she was always eager to have an international assignment. So at one point we got approached, both of us, to kind of be a package deal to go to London and help out and build the underwriting staff. And I, as silly as it sounds, debated it for a while because I was halfway through graduate school and I was hoping to get to a graduate degree. And she's like, come on, this is a chance of a lifetime. Don't be silly. This is, and she was absolutely right. So I, I dropped the work on a graduate degree and we moved. And I, I think it just kind of opened up my mind to the world. I mean, professionally, I think within a year of being in London, my territory previously had been downstate Illinois. So I was traveling to places like Champagne and Peoria. And uh, within a year, I was traveling to places like South Africa and going to places like Pretoria. So I was going uh, Peoria, Illinois to Pretoria. And I really, it's just eye-opening in terms of how you interact with cultures, people who are completely different from you are. And, and I, I just changed the way I think about stuff. And then personally, it gave us a chance to travel. Everything seemed to be an hour from London by plane. And it just gave us, it kind of, again, opened up my eyes dramatically. Anything that you brought 
back with you, obviously a, a widened aperture, but any anything from England that's become part of your routine here? Do you have a favorite English football team or anything else that you've adopted here? Well, all three of our kids were born there, so we've got a, I think there's a natural affinity. All of us now have dual citizenship, so I think we've got a new appreciation for travel. We did have, I, I did have season tickets at Chelsea while I was there, and, and that has been a nice family passion. And so every Saturday or Sunday morning, we are huddled around the TV watching. So I think that's been a, it's been a great, I don't know, bonding experience for us as a family to have that common experience that's so different from where we are today. Hey, Hartford employees, make sure to visit iConnect, where you'll find all the latest news on our business wins, well-being tips, benefit updates, upcoming company events, and so much more. But if you can't see it daily, be sure to read iConnect Week in Review every Friday morning. That's where you can get caught up on what you missed. We now return to the lead, the Hartford's Executive Podcast Series. So one of the things that I think people always are really interested in are stories about mentors and mentorship. And so I'll ask you, Mo, is there anybody that stands out as a really influential mentor or sponsor? And if so, talk about some of the lessons that you took away from that individual. Yeah, there are a number, but I think the first one that really had an impact, actually, he, this individual hired both my wife and I individually. So he was the person responsible for hiring us into Genry. He had gone to a London ahead of us. He's the one who moved us both to London. And then he actually, late in his career, moved to China and decided to open up Genry in China. So I've always had, as a result of him, he just passed away recently, but he always had a fascination with new people, places. He had an incredibly open mind. He valued diversity in a way that just kind of put a seed into me early. But he he was a massive influence on, on where I am today, but just also just the way my brain works. I want to ask a little bit about how you engage with the community. So you are on the Connecticut and Rhode Island chapter board of the Red Cross. I know you were deeply involved in supporting uh, some of the blood drive activity that happens on our campus here in Hartford, Connecticut. You're also on the Earth Place Board of Trustees. Talk a little bit more about these organizations and what about them attracted you and, and why do you spend your time with them? Yeah, the Red Cross, I, I, thankfully, everybody knows that organization. It's a powerful organization. And, and yes, they are in the, the blood business and they're, they're helping people. But the disaster relief work that they do um, is, is incredible. You know, they're taking on causes like sickle cell anemia and trying to help the elimination of that if at all possible. So I just, I, I, I find when people are in need, the Red Cross is there and it's just been, even if, you know, if, if any of us are unfortunate enough to have a home fire and first people that are likely to show up is some sort of Red Cross volunteer to make sure that you have a place to stay and so I just, I'm passionate about that. I got involved because of the blood drive here, and it's just kind of blossomed into a broader role at the state level. Earth Place is, a, is an environmental organization that's really involved in childhood education locally. And so I, I, um, I'm a strong believer that part of our future is making sure that our children, our kids in general, are exposed to environmental issues. If you can get your hands dirty and you can play outside a bit more. And so we bring kids from outside of Westport into 
birthplace, people from Bridgeport and some other uh, more city-like environments and just get them exposure to the outside. I think that early age exposure just makes a, a world of difference as you grow and have that, that exposure early in your life. So yeah, those are two um, that are really important to me. So I know you don't have a lot of free time between your responsibilities at the Hartford and some of the volunteer activities that you've talked about. When you get free time, what do you like to do with it? And I did hear that you love the outdoors, but somebody mentioned that you have built a 20-foot canoe. That is, yeah, that's accurate. Yep, I'm not sure who knew that. But I find that in our day-to-day jobs, especially when you're in financial services or insurance, that the, you can go home at the end of the day and not necessarily feel like you've had a tangible outcome. Um, you don't necessarily feel and see your need. You don't, you don't feel the progress you've made. So I, I find that I need things outside of the office that allow me a little bit more tangible feedback. So projects like that are good. That's a couple of years ago now. Um, I still got it. We still use it, uh, that canoe, and I like projects like that just to get my hands calloused up and try different things. And I think there's a learning process through that as well, because I can guarantee you that I don't know how to do most of the projects you start, but you figure it out by the end. So I want to switch gears now and talk about your time at the Hartford. So you came to the Hartford in 2015 as Chief Underwriting Officer. Talk a little bit about your early days with the company and what were some of your initial impressions? What attracted to me to the Hartford really was a pace and aspiration. And I, I, I felt it very quickly. And even when Doug and some other people called me to come up and join, you could tell that the place wanted to be something very different than it was today. And it had big, big aspirations. And there was a, as I said, a pace that was important to me. And, and so, no, I, I think that was what attracted to me then. And it's still here now. It's palpable and, and it hasn't gone away. And I don't know if there's a little chip on our shoulder or what it is, but there's, a, there's an aspiration that this, this company still has that I can feel every day when I show up. As you spent time at the Hartford, you took on roles heading up middle, large, and specialty. And then also you added enterprise sales and distribution to your portfolio. I'm curious, is there anything you'd want to highlight from those uh, different assignments? And were there any adjustments that you had to make in your uh, leadership style compared to your time as chief underwriting officer and, and the work that you did at Genry. I think the biggest change, Paul, and it's, it's, it's probably understated, but I went from working effectively for a private company. So obviously Genry was a part of Berkshire Hathaway, but when you're a small bit of a big beast like that, you really don't get exposed to the demands of being a publicly traded company. Um, and obviously, Mr. Buffett runs a very different company than than others of that size. But um, coming in here as a public company, that was a that was a big change, and the quarterly demands and the the transparency and the reporting out to the board. And there's just a lot that goes into it that's just different, and and it has a different cadence. It has a different set of requirements to it. So that took some time to get used to. Yeah, that's not, you know, it's funny when people are chatting, particularly with early career professionals, that's a distinction that sometimes gets overlooked because it is very different in a private company versus a publicly held company. How did you, how did you navigate that learning curve? I think I complained a lot about it early on, if I'm <laughs> honest, just because it, it does suck 
time away from you. you time that I never had to commit when I was at Genry, just because we were a small piece of an incredibly large company. There's just frictional time that just goes away. Now I'm quite comfortable with it. I mean, the flip side of that same thing, it does create a pace and a demand that I think is different. And when you have that shareholder to report out to every quarter, there's a there's a responsibility and and uh, a commitment that I think steps it up that has been, I, for me, really rewarding. I, I think that's an important part. When you're trying to make sure you have a, a good answer for the stakeholders at the end of the quarter, it puts a little extra speed into your stride, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation, Mo. It's been a treat. And thank you to everyone listening to The Lead. Until next time, I'm Paula Angelo. This has been The Lead, the Harford's executive podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you'd be notified on the latest episodes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.